Um, if we could begin, Lee, if you could just describe uh, what life was like in the late 80s and, yes. you know, up to that fateful day in July 1990, yeah. what was family life like for you uh, living in Gloucestershire? You know, when I look back now, I was a very, very lucky child. We all were, myself, my two younger brothers, and my two older half-brothers used to come and visit us. They lived with their father in Newbury, and they used to visit us on them, like, summer holidays and Christmas holidays. A, a very lucky, a very idyllic childhood in the, in the countryside. Um, we had our normal things like computers, the ZX Spectrum to play with, spent a lot of time outside. Um, our little farm, as it were, the small holding was down in King Stanley. It wasn't actually... The house, the house and the small holding were separate, although we did keep some livestock at our house in Kingstanley up under the woods. Um, so we had you know, uh, all the woodlands to play in. Fantastic summers, you know, Christmas time, brilliant with the snow. Mum and dad make a real effort with, with us. Even Father Christmas was there. Even my dad joined in and would uh, get the sheep up or the goat and put footprints across the snow. So we thought the reindeer had been there. And wow. delivered the presents, and, you know, and the Christmas uh, by the yodel, the, the wood burning stove in the sitting room, we put clogs down and mince pies. And so, a really great, fantastic childhood. I was good on the farm with dad and feed the animals and stuff, but um, it was really good. But they're, they're unfortunately, there's always that bit of aggro with the next door neighbors due to vehicular access. And, and I was very aware of that from the age of, say, became aware of it from the age of six years old onwards. Wow. We moved there when I was around about five years old. Um, my 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 mum and dad purchased the property, knowing there wasn't going to be vehicular access. My dad originally didn't want to purchase it because of that very reason. The original estate agents did say that you know I'm sure you could come to an agree an arrangement with the next door neighbours and they'd let you use their driveway. Never would. Um, mm. So it was always it was always a struggle from day one. Like I said, with vehicle access because it was a long steep drive to walk up. Yeah. Yeah, so it does, I mean, it absolutely sounds like that picture postcard idyllic life, oh, well, but there was yeah. there was almost this undercurrent of this ongoing neighbourly dispute, wasn't there, over the yeah. vehicular access yeah. to your yeah. property? Um, just tell us a little bit about that, if you can, Lee. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, basically, well, like I said, again, when we moved in, there was no vehicular access, so my dad approached Terry Moore around about nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty, and offered him quite a substantial sum of money to to by the access so we can have a shared drive with them he said they'd think about it um come back uh, the following night which my father did and he wanted like twice as much as my dad originally offered and that he actually said he'd reinstate the driver and everything for him so that was the end of that you know we do have to walk up their driveway i wasn't even allowed to ride my little i had a little grifter i think it was i wasn't even allowed to ride on their driveway i remember sitting on it once and tomo's wife came out and she said get off that bike and pu- push it down and that's how it was you know and as a youngster you sort of think well you're doing something wrong you're not you're six years old sort of respect your elders and only when you get older you just realize how stupid that was now had it was mm. and that you can't ride a push bike on their driveway yeah, like what uh, harm were you going to be doing? Exactly, exactly. And it's really, you know, looking back at back now, it's just with psychotic tendencies. Um, and we weren't allowed, if friends came to visit us, they wasn't allowed to drive up, they'd have to walk up the driveway. And um, it was really, really sensitive about it, they were, about that, that. It was a concrete driveway. It's just it's just stupid when you when you look back now. Um, and mum had to carry all her shopping at the, at the field, but dad had to carry... We, we used to have a, a dog boarding kennels and we had some chickens and geese there. Main livestock was at the farm, like the cattle and everything else, the small holding. The house, like I say, we had some chickens and stuff for eggs. 
dad would have to carry all the, the, the chicken feed and everything else at the house, at the at their field. Um and they'd just be quite happy watching us struggle with it, really. Because mm. I, I remember Bethan talking about it in the episode, actually, that um, it would be a case of to, to access the house, you would have to walk up a hill, walk across a yeah, field yeah. to then get to the house rather than just using a driveway that was there. So uh, it was almost your typical boundary dispute, wasn't it? And, yeah, and the, the, yeah. the neighbours just weren't willing to, to have any uh, goodwill yeah. or open to negotiations for uh, purchasing a right of access. So. Obviously, um, events escalated uh, up to your sort of teenage years. So as you became a teenager, events had escalated. So before we get to that fateful day in July 1990, when when your father sadly lost his life, what what happened up to that point to to make events take that that tragic turn that they took? Well, because they refused to, to let us use the access, luckily, my dad got friends with the people who owned the, the woodland. We had a big, it was Penwoods, the jung in the back of our property, 170 odd acres, if I'm correct, in total. That span of woodland went from Salzicon and past our house and past uh, the next door neighbor, Moore's house. Um, so owners said to my father that he could use an old logging track that went down f- from the Salzy Road, from Salzy Common, down through the back of the wood, back to, to the back of our house. If he kept an eye on the boundary fences and kept up at the you know, general woodland maintenance, my late father was very familiar with where the boundary fences were supposed to be. And around about 1990, the woodlands came up for sale. My dad was worried, and quite rightly so, that if somebody else purchased a woodland, we would never, ever be able to have access. Whoever bought the wood, they could turn around and say, well, no, tough, we don't use this access anymore. So dad's boss at the time, um, Alan Smith from Smith's in Eastington, offered to help my dad out. He said, look, you know, I understand you're having a bit of a problem. If you come with half the money purchase the woodland i can come up with the other half so a struggle from mum and dad they didn't manage to half the money remortgage the house then we bought then alan smith purchased penwood so then we had our access and we were fine we got our access then what happened was terry moore he started to he had this boundary fence which he encroached on the woodland and to think it wasn't just a short little bit of land it was a lot of land and when i think that my dad must have patience a joke to deal with it because it's never worth losing your life over a boundary fence, but the fact was that a ridiculous mortgage you had to now pay, Woodland, he didn't really want. It, all he wanted was just access. So he had to have this ridiculous £1,200 mortgage hanging around his neck in 1990 just to get access for his house. Now the next-door neighbour is seeing land that doesn't belong to him. That's how it all escalated. And the trees that uh, Terry Moore was stealing, like, he literally had the, 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 the Woodland joined his his field as a direct boundary fence so what he was doing was encroaching on moving that boundary fence up into the woodland it's these uh, beech trees in and the, the beech trees then i think back in 1990 they were they were classed as very good beech trees very very straight okay. they're worth probably a thousand pound a piece for straight timber terry moore's trying to steal the timber steal the woodland you know and like i like i was saying i didn't want the wood he only got the wood just to get access not only has he got our, you know, only we've had, we struggled all those years not getting, not, not getting access through there, not allowed to use their driveway, but now buy this woodland and now they're stealing his land. I know that resulted in, I think your dad put a fence up, is that right? Yeah, and then yeah well, Terry would we'll, take that down. Well, Terry Moore put the fence up, my dad would take the fence down and, and put it back where it's supposed to be. Terry Moore would take that fence, put it back even further, 
prevent my dad and, and obviously tension were rising my dad was going to do my i remember my dad saying i heard him have a conversation with my mum, and he started saying i do this the right way and i go through the courts get a solicitor involved he said because i'm not there like along there they use any excuse they can um to go in their favor but dad was spending all this money on on, on solicitor's fees and it was just get dragging on and dragging on and like i was saying the fence was getting taken taken down by dad then Tim was back and uh, putting back up again knowing damn well he was, he, was, he was thieving. I wasn't the only person he did this to. My father did it to my father. It wasn't just my dad he did it to. He did it to other people in the valley as well. Mm. Just mm. stole their land. And this was just going backwards and forwards over a space of a few months, this was, with, with, the, with the boundary dispute. Of course. So so relations had never been good between neighbours for, for the reasons oh, yeah. that we've talked about already. And then yeah. we, we've seen there a, a real deterioration in that relationship in the yeah. first half of 1990. So if I may, Lee, if I can take you then to that fateful day in July of 1990 when, when your dad lost his life. Um, yeah. I know you were there. I know your mom was in France and, and your That's brothers right. were away as well. So it was just you and your dad. You were both yeah. looking forward to spending the day together and the day ended in tragedy. So uh, it's your story to tell. And, you know, if you can yeah. please tell us what happened on that day. Well, do. I remember, like I said, it was just my dad and myself at the, at the, uh, up at the cottage. It was great to have that bit of time together again, you know, and I used to let, and it was the school holidays and have a good of work. And I walked down to King Stanley, feed the animals during the day. My best friend Martin there, and then had a great time feeding the, the pigs, the animals, everything, everything else. That very morning, I was on the way down to walk down their driveway to go down into King Stanley. And I remember I could hear some knocking noise in the woods to the left of me. I looked up towards the woodland and I could see what looked like several men up there taking the fence down and, and re-erecting a new one. Obviously, myself, I wasn't going to go up there and see them. I just sort of ignored it and went back down to the farm. And I, what I would, after I'd been to the farm during the day, I'd go and meet my um, dad at my grandmother's house in Leonard Stanley on the evening. That's when I told him about they, you know, they'd been taking the fence down and putting it back up again. He's really, it really upset him. He's just, he's just really sort of downing himself, sort of depressed mm. with it. You know, he's really getting on top of him because it was going on and on and on. And then he said, um, we'll have to go up and have a look. And I always remember my grand saying, Watch those buggers tones. She said, I just don't trust them. Watch them. Just be careful. Watch them, she said. So I left my grand's house. I remember watching Neighbours at the time. It was about six, at six o'clock when it finished. And we dra- drove straight up to the woodland. And on the way to the woodland, we stopped and had a chat with this uh, milk lady called Joyce Allen. And my dad actually was asking her, because this boundary dispute was ongoing, would she be a witness boundary fence was supposed to be because she was familiar with, with Penwood as well and she said yes no problem Tony I can do that I know exactly where the fence is supposed to be on that moment um we parked on, on the side of the road having a conversation with Joyce Allen Big Moore Terry Moore's son came and in the opposite direction is uh, Peugeot 504 pickup as he came past he you know he revved his engine and just gave, looked across at me down and gave him a, a really filthy look and it's a really bad look we did. We turned around and went to go and try and get old, get, get, go after Greg to just see what the problem was. Why, why give us that horrible look? And we didn't. He, he just, he just sped off. So he just sort of left it. Went to the woodland, and it was quite. Um, just as we got to the top of Penn Lane, um, uh, we stopped on his name, Paddy Broslin, on his property. We had a. He, he wasn't there. Paddy wasn't there. We had a quick chat with a, with a chick, quick chat. Name uh, Peter Peter Marks. I remember Peter just seemed a bit edgy. He wanted, he wanted to, to make a move, so he had to go off. And Dad was just having a quick conversation about the prices of I, I Susie Trooper. Dad owned one back then. He wanted to know what the book price was for it if he had to sell it. 
You heard some noises in the wood as you walked up to the boundary fences. It was just a couple of walkers. So we stopped talking to these walkers and they were chatting about Woodchester Mansion, been up, going up in the gliders at the Nimsfield Gliding Club. It left, climbed over this five bar, well, really, it was only a five bar gate, but just a small rustic style gate to the boundary fence. And you could see quite clearly they moved out considerably even further into the, into the woodland. I mean, I can always remember I stood to, to the left of my dad and I remember looking up at him and he just, that, that the, the look of weariness on his face, you know, because it's just sort of getting to him, having to pay this massive mortgage. But it's had everything right. He, he, well, he was such a, such a graft. I've never known somebody to work so hard as he did, his family, to supply, you know, to supply his family and stuff. And it was just the, the look of, um, like I said, just weariness and tiredness and just, just fed up. Whole situation, yeah. It's sad, it's very sad. Anyway, left there, went back down to the farm, feed the animals. What he went to do was to go down and um, get his fencing tools so he could go back up and take the fence down. Whilst we were there, we, we were feeding the pigs and stuff and the animals, and we had a bit of a laugh, a joke in the yard. Um, I was saying to him that I've been because we had these, he got me these two odd spot piglets and a Tamworth. He'd feed him uh, barley meal. And skim milk, but the skim milk was dried skim milk, and it's quite sweet. I used to eat it. He said, "You haven't been flipping eating that, have you?" And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Oh, you try some. You got a day. You try some." And he had the it was a little like a we had a little steel bowl, and he and he remember dipping his big hand in there, and he was trying to taste it. And it was all over his beard. <laughs> skim milk. I always remember laughing and joking about it. So it was nice. Our last moments was, was a good bit of fun, you know, down the farm. Mm. We left there, and we we, we loaded the kit on the back. The fencing strainers and the various tools that he needed to take the fence down. We drove back up to Middle Yard, head up to Penwood, and we stopped in in Middle Yard at the bottom of Pen Lane and sat in the Land Rover. And he actually said to me, "He said, what do you want to do? He said, do you want to come up and give me a hand to take the fence down, or go back go back home, feed the animals?" I said, "Well, do you want? I want to go with him. I said, "Someone come with you, Dad." He put the Land Rover in first gear, and he hesitated and dropped it back in neutral. Well, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, um, you go on home and, and, and feed the animals, he said, and I'll see you later. And then he said, he said, do you think I should wait for Simon? He had a mate called Simon. Do you think I should wait for Simon and then and, and let him give, get him to give me a hand to take the fence down? Because I think he, he could sort of sense something. One yeah. of those people, you know, he could sense something wasn't quite right. And, he, and I noticed that when we were up in the wood. I said, yeah, yeah, wait, wait, for, yeah, wait for Simon. Because his mate was in the forest, back down the forest of Dean at the time. I said, yeah, wait for Simon to come back. Again, he hesitated again. He said, uh, he said no, I'll tell you what, he said, I'll, I'll drop you back at home, he said. And the last words he said to me, he said, if you're any gunshots, he said, and the police uh, right away and say, your next door, your next door neighbor's firing at your dad. That's what he said. To me, it's a, it's a difficult one now because obviously if that was said to me now, I, you know, it'd be in absolute panic. But it's a 14-year-old lad. For one thing, you don't think someone's going to shoot your dad. To me, he was like Superman. Anything, I want, yeah. As far as I can say, oh, Dad could do anything. You know, he he'd be fine. You know, that's not going to happen. You know what? Yeah. Oh, his memory dropped me. We we drove. He started the Land Rover. We drove from Pen Lane to Coombe Lane, which is the the access that went up. Is a little lane that goes up to the bottom of the, the mall's driveway. Dropped me off at the bottom. I run up Coombe Lane. So you turn the Land Rover back round again to go back up Pen Lane. I was up. I took the dogs out for the walk. Sorry, before I took the dogs out for the walk, I had a little kestrel. I got Kezzy out, feeding, Kestrel, feeding the Kestrel, and he's on my left fist. I remember sitting on the wall at home thinking, 
the dad's up in that wood on his own taking that fence down I thought what if they do go there with guns what if they do shoot I thought not going to do that that's, that's ridiculous don't think like that that's something that happens you know, in, the, in America at the very most or Hollywood films that's not going to happen here in King Stanley because part of me dad had, a, dad had a couple of shotguns which he hardly ever used that he wouldn't he, it's just it's a bit upsetting because you think he could have took something with him uh, but he was, it just wasn't his way. He wouldn't do that. It's just not, yeah. he wasn't that type of person. He wasn't. I'm thinking, uh, like I said, he was up there on his own. And I thought, no, they're, they're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. And to get the two two dogs, of other dogs, to take them for, for a walk. And then walking down the field, and it was a lovely summer's evening. I remember looking up the other side of towards Salsey Common, I could see a guy walk across the field. Then all of a sudden, I heard an almighty, almighty loud bang. I remember my stomach just turned. Then I just the automatic reaction was to go up to the spot, run up to the spot where Dad was. I'm sort of, you know, you 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 you're panicking. You got adrenaline kicking in, still not really knowing or taking in what possibly could happen or could have happened. I remember sort of running up to the spot. Well, I say run, I run part of the way, then walked. I remember climbing over this tree, fallen tree, beech tree. I got behind the mall's house. I started going very quietly and slowly walking along very steady and I've got the two dogs going ahead of me then I saw an ambulance coming through King Stanley uh, sorry coming down through Milliard so my thought was if something bad has happened ambulance on its way because it's so rare you see an ambulance at that time going through Milliard I thought if something's happened to dad or they're, they're doing something if an ambulance is going to be there and if they have guns and firing guns he's going to be called so it sort of gave me it gave me a bit of um, courage to go on forward. Mm. I sort of thought, shall I go back and do what Dad said? He said to me, "If you were any gunshots, ring the police up, police up straight away." Uh, just some, I just want to get to him. I just want to, want to get up there because I think still part of me, not you know, they can't have shot him. You know, it's just it's hard. It's hard to sort of. Um, I, I can understand what you're saying. You know, you're not going to think that's happened. Oh, you're not, you know, and then and I had these two two dogs with me, two trusted rock loaders, dogs, great dogs, and they were with me as well, so I felt a bit safer. I started carrying on, carrying on going through the wood, and I came across, uh, it's like an overturned tree stump, and I could swear I could see somebody crouching down with a shotgun, facing up the bank to where the boundary fence was. Because uh, you had like beech trees which were heavily leafed and moving in the wind, you couldn't, it's sort of cutting your vision off. So I, I got two rock loaders to go on ahead. And then I followed them, and whoever it was, as I got around this bit of a corner, they disappeared. Hmm. I got and walked off. Carried on walking, and I was going really, really steady. I got to where the boundary fence was, down on my right-hand side. Carried on walking, I couldn't see, because that's where the altercation started to take place there. Uh, they came across my dad. Carried on walking. I actually got to the spot where he'd been shot. I didn't know this till a later date, but I couldn't see any blood or anything like that because it was the, like I said the, the tree. It's getting quite, it's getting later, and there's a, a full canopy of trees, and so the wood is quite getting quite dark. Yeah, this is probably the fact that Dad had said to me to go and feed the animals save my life in the first instant. Otherwise, if I'd have been, I'd definitely been, I'd definitely been dead as well. Yeah. I had two choices. When I got to that spot, I thought I can either go down this. Quite difficult to explain, but. I would go down this gully. Now, if I walked down this gully, I'd have literally walked into my dad's, followed my dad's footsteps. Where I've been, where I was standing, making this decision, where he'd just been shot, wow. he got up and managed to stagger off down this gully and make this corner. It's literally just around this corner. 
dying and I didn't know. Now, if I'd have gone down this gully, I'd have walked straight into them and it'd been game over for me. Gosh. So left of me, there was like a little, well, it's still there, it's a metal gate. I thought, if I can get over that gate, I can walk down parallel to the gully. I was on this gate we'd actually walked over earlier where we saw, well, we climbed over earlier where I saw the, we, we, we spoke to these walkers. Mm. I thought, if I get over this gate, I walk down parallel with the gully don't know why i was getting it was just i don't know what it was why i felt like go that way it was just it was just i don't know it was just like a natural instinct and i got over the gate and i knew it's like because it's long grass i could hide i had cover i tried to get the two dogs to follow me through when i couldn't get them through and they sort of disappeared anyway just crawling down in this grass creeping down sort of walking parallel creeping parallel with the gully where my dad had gone down I was down by this plum tree, crouched down underneath a plum tree. And then I could make out some voices whispering. Couldn't hear what they were saying, just, just whispering. I sat there for, it's, it's hard to say how long I was sat there for. Obviously, this is 30 years ago, but I wasn't there all that long. Then Greg Moore, Greg Moore Sam, he spotted me and called out my name. He, he went, Lee? And still, at this time, I don't know what's happened. I still, all I've heard is one loud gunshot. And, uh, mm. you think something's not right. Still don't quite know what's what's going on. Because I heard a familiar, knew it was Greg. I heard it, recognised his voice. It was a familiar person. I got, got up and started to walk towards him. Or while I saw he had, where he was, walked towards him. He disappeared down this gully out of sight. So he went down a hill. And all of a sudden, I went to climb over this fence. There was a massive bang. The the, the shot had came from where he'd just been. So I walked away. Where the shot was fired from, walked down the gully. The shot, so he, if I was facing that gully, he's gone down to my left, and the shot came from the right. I would have seen him back up, I would have seen him still. There was still, there was still light, I didn't. He disappeared as soon as I was shot. I always remember feeling that it was just like a hot blast, and it felt like hot bits of metal hit my face and my body. And the ground, the ground, the grass parted. I remember my right arm flicked back, so I got hit in the right arm. Then my bottom half of my body just twisted to the left. It was just a nat- natural instinct. It's weird. It's never, obviously, I've been shot again like that, you know, but then mm. funny how your body reacts. And I just sort of ran, ran for my life. At the time there was a house being built, it was just the footings there. It was Paddy Brosnan's house that was being built. Jumped down this bank and I ran over a stand pile. And I remember running away tense in my back because I was really feared of being shot in the back. Mm. I was aware of some blue light flashing. So I knew that was safety, blue lights means police. So I remember running down this driveway with my back tensed. I felt so open and vulnerable and waiting to be shot in the back. I ran down into the arms of this, this gentleman called John Graham, who was uh, actually a school teacher at the time. He grabbed hold of me. He said, who's doing the shooting? And I said, Greg and someone. Anyway, he took me from there down to his house. And then by that time, the armed response were then all running up the lane with, with guns, with loaded guns. They took me, um, John Graham took me into his house. So, uh, still at this point, I still didn't know where my dad was. Know what if he'd been shot, what, what, where he'd been injured, or where he was. I was taken into Mr. Graham's house, and his wife, she, um, of my injury to my arm. Miraculously, all I was caught with is what I found at a later date is what the ballistic expert called a flyer, which is a low velocity pellet. I don't know if you're familiar with 12 ball shotguns, but when you fire them, they, they, they come out of a cartridge and they spread. What happened was most of the shot went between my, my right arm and my body. Between there. 
Yeah. So, so lucky for the grace of God. As it hit one of these low-velocity flyers that comes off the bunch of pellets, and nicked me like, a nice little round hole, little round hole in my right forearm. Kath Graham, John Graham's wife, she sort of patched it up, and then uh, there was police everywhere, but obviously by that time. I wasn't allowed to have any communication with any family members or anything else. I started to worry about where my, my, my dogs were, my dad's dogs. Yeah, and I still didn't know what happened to Dad. And I was obviously in a bit of a state of shock, but it's weird when I think back how I wasn't shaking because I remember speaking to John Graham not so long ago. I said, how was I? How Can you can you recall how I was? He said, you was remarkably calm for what had just happened. I think maybe it takes a while for shock to actually set in, but I think some people, you either think I'm quite good in a stressful situation, you can deal with it, and some people fall apart. And I think in stressful situations, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty calm. But I walked back out. I remember calling the dogs. Then I went up at the this garden at John Graham's, which sort of is quite a steep garden, which head up to the woods. I was calling the dogs. I saw this chap walk through, and I couldn't make, make out who it was, and it was a police officer or what, and, and he just sort of said, hello. I was scared, and I just legged it back down to the house again. Um, and I said to, said to the police, there's somebody up there, and I don't know what, what they did or whatever. I was talking to this, the WPC, and I recognised this, this gentleman in the back of uh, this unmarked red fiesta who was a very good friend of the Moore family and I said to her I said what's he doing here she said we've picked him up for drunk and disorderly and I say come back now I think it's very odd to take somebody or pick somebody up for drunk and disorderly and take him to a scene of a shooting anyway, he was shouting obscenities in the back of the car and he said his exact words were let me out I need a piss I need a piss let me out let, them out, let him out of the car he looked at me, he walked up Penn Lane, he had his hands behind his head, he stressed, for fuck's sake, fuck's sake, looking up and down. And then, then the police officers, Doug PC, he come on, you better go back inside the house. He ushered me back inside the house. I didn't see that bloke again uh, until a couple of years later. And then I was taken back into the, um, the Graham's property. And we stood in their kitchen, and then I was aware of my uncle Robert outside the house with my cousin. And I waved at them, and I felt a bit relieved because there's a family member there. But the police turned them away because they weren't allowed to see me. It wasn't allowed to see a family member. Mm. And there, I go. I, I, it was a little bit of a blur. People asked me questions. Um, it's, it's, go, it's gone by a bit quick. Nothing really else I can really talk about what happened there. I, I think I remember they made me a cup of tea, a sit down. Found at, a later, found at a later stage that Terry Moore was actually upstairs. They were upstairs, obviously separate from me, while they were trying to work out what was going on. And then I was taken to Stroud Police Station. I was kept at Stroud Police Station all night long and about six o'clock the next morning. John Graham, because I was a minor, he had to come with me. He was a school teacher who I originally ran into after being shot. And I remember a vivid conversation with him when I sat down and I said to him, um, he knew that he, he was... Um, one that um, actually saw my dad when, when Terry Moore had shot my dad. They casually walked down to his house, and obviously didn't tell me this. Then he told me this a, a long time later that Terry Moore was quite casually knocked on his door and said, "Look, there's been an accident. Can you call the ambulance?" He said he was very calm, mm. and, like, yeah, nonchalant about it. Anyway, I said he said asked me then, "Who do you think shot you?" I said, it wasn't Greg who shot me. I said, it must have been Terry Moore. I said, because when Greg shot me, he walked down the gully. I would have seen him walk back up again. Because I said, it was, it was still, it was still daylight. Definitely would have seen him. About 120% would have seen him. And he said, well, it wasn't Tim Terry Moore. I said, why not? He said, well, Terry Moore was stood with me when the second shot was fired. 
I said, well, there must have been a third gunman. So from that night to this day, there's at least three gunmen involved. The third gunman is the person who shot me, 120%. Wow. I can tell you more than I can more. So the police know all this. And this is the this is the compelling evidence that it needs to go back to court because there was at least at least 120 percent three people involved in the shooting that night. Thank thanks um, so far, Lee, just for painting such a vivid picture of of what was. We talked, didn't we, before we started recording? You know, it was 30 years ago, but yeah. it's it's an absolutely tragic incident. It's just something that you never get over. Yeah. And whilst time does help to. Uh, put distance between those events and and the present day just so grateful for you to to painting that vivid picture and we're going to come on to some of the other aspects now because um bethan's got some specific questions that i'm going to let her um, sort of come on to and we'll address um really the the subsequent story because the story only really began on that day and it is still ongoing 30 years later um so so i'll hand over to bethan now so thank you yeah to echo what mark said thank you for sharing that story with us and for telling that for our listeners um i agree i think it's such an important story to tell and to make sure that it does get out there still so first of all how did you discover our episode sort of what what made you get in touch with us uh what made me get in touch is just the fact that i I was speaking to my younger brother last night about it how Oh, it was covered, and there was there's stuff you mentioned in there that the, the press seemed to not to mention. It's always sort of coerced in the favour of the Moors, or we don't really know what happened. You know, it's an accident, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and then, and I just think I, when I listened to it, I thought it's now it's an important part for me or important time for me to come forward and listen to to our side of the story because as the old saying, there's always two sides to the story, and there is there's always two sides to a sto- to a story. Our side of the story has never truly been told. It's always the more side of the story, always has been. And this, this is why we've been battling for 30 years. My uncle and auntie have been pursuing this relentlessly to try and get our side of the story across. And this is why we needed a, a retrial. Mm-hmm. Um, so what were your thoughts on the episode? How did you sort of find me sort of telling the story? I thought it was told very well, to be honest. I thought it was told very well. Again, it's just the fact that um, you, you, all you can really say is what you've read you know, in in the in the media. So I think it's re- it was really important for me to come forward and say mm-hmm. that you covered it very well. I thought it was covered very well. My brother said that last night, the way you explain certain situations that it's never been sort of mentioned before. I think it's it's often quite difficult, and I'm sure Mark would agree, because we try and use all the information we can possibly find, but it's going to be what the media publish. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, Absolutely. to be able to to hear, I mean, it's it's makes me feel a lot better that actually we were able to tell a story correctly with what we had. Yeah. Um, but what I'm you so had, glad yeah. you were able to kind of expand on that for us. Yeah, that that's that was an important thing because I, I felt like you both you, you both generally were saying in a heartfelt type of way. And there's, I can't, to be honest, uh, Beth, and I have not, I wanted to listen to it again this week because I kept points in there, but I've been so busy with work, I've not had a chance to. I thought that's what was, that's why I wanted to get in contact to other to other things to the story that re- really important aspects, especially when regarding the actual shooting that I found out what happened afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. later, years later, ballistics uh, evidence. So we should we should probably just say for context that um, so Terry and his son Greg. 
uh, have, have never been found guilty of, of any any That's crime right. in relation to your father's death and yes. and your shooting. And I know it went to trial, um, but it was it was thrown out before a jury could actually um, decide on it. So if you could just tell us a little bit about what's happened over the last it's it's a long time, but in, in, in as briefly as you can, what's really happened in terms of your and your uncle Bob's quest for justice? Well, if I be if I be totally honest, nothing. We still haven't had justice. We've we've got it back into the public eye, you know. Um, we had a we had a, we had a civil trial back in two thousand and two. This is the sickening part about it. The civil trial was all about the only way I could do it was in my name through civil damages, which my uncle brought forward on my behalf. Um, and we was hoping to get a criminal conviction or get the evidence out, just get the truth out properly. But every mm. single bit of evidence was overturned by the by the, by the judge. A ballistics expert working on the case called Dr. Frank Swan. The exact words to me um, were, were "Dad wasn't murdered. It was a cold execution. He said there was at least three people there. He said the fact that you got shot the way they said you got shot, he said that, that, that gun shot about to go up and hit the moon and come back down and hit you. He said that was a direct line of fire at you. So when you've got an expert saying that to you, it says it all. He said to me, when a rock, his actual word, when a rock comes down and crushes those bastards, just make sure you're not around. That's what he said to me. Mm, it's got to And, and it's, it's, it's honestly, Mark, it is corrupt and disgusting beyond belief. It really is. Only, we recently we've um, celebrated 75 years of the Second World War. Grand, well, both my grandfathers fought for this country. And my mm. dad's father was a, was a chinder. He was a very, he was a big, uh, and this is another annoying fact that they describe a father as six foot three and eighteen twenty stone. He wasn't the same height. He was maybe like five foot ten, and my dad was like fourteen stone, which is actually lighter than me. But our grandfather was six foot four. He was a big, tall, tall man. He served in Burma, chinned it in, in the Forgotten Army in Burma. I think to myself, would he would he have gone? If he could see into the future, would he have gone and served for this country, knowing that Queen and country would cover it up? His, his son, his grandson. Gets shot and his grandson, sorry, his son gets shot and murdered. His grandson gets shot these years later. You know, it's just it's, it's, it makes you think it does. And be- before the judge stopped proceedings into that trial, I think it was two weeks into the trial, um, yeah. the judge, judge said that he, he couldn't be sure that a jury could um, reach a, a decision, really. that you know what happened is what happened so it was kind of thrown out and am i right in thinking the judge actually praised the way that greg had acted and and said that his father could be proud of him yeah, that's what he said yeah i praised him praised him for shooting a man he pra- the judge basically praised him god help him you know if there's an afterlife i don't know where he's ended up but um and for that justice shieldman's family to know that they've got a judge who says that sort of thing praises a man a son for shooting an unarmed man dead Reloading the same shotgun and show and shooting a fourteen-year-old boy. Twenty minutes later, there's no mention of a third gunman there. It's just and Gloucestershire Constabulary. It's disgusting. The whole thing. It's just it stinks from you know, start to finish. It really does. And what do you think their motivation might be? So we have to preface this with you know these are your uh, thoughts. Um, we've not necessarily got evidence here, but what? Why do you think if they are covering something up, why do you think they they would do that? Either they they did such a shoddy job in the investigation in the first place, mm-hmm. shoddy job, or keep it going, or Terry Moore was a member of something, some fraternity. And there's been all sorts of rumours over the years that he was, you know, he was a merchant navy, supposed to be in the merchant navy. 
somebody turned around and said to me, I won't mention his name. Um, he's an older guy. He said that apparently he's a spy. If he was a spy, he's getting sort of looked after. Because mm-hmm. it's when you've got something like this, and this is this 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 does go on in the, in the background. And I'm not I'm not wanting to be all into the conspiracy theories, but what I like to do is keep an open mind, look at things objectively. When you've got the evidence that we've got and the admissions that they've said, it's black and white. It was a cold blooded murder, just on the fact and unlicensed firearms, shooting a man dead. There's no struggle over the gun. We've proved that time and time again. There's no fingerprints of my dad on Terry Moore or Greg Moore's gun. Gun was then reloaded. First of all, they had to flick that safety catch off because they're trying to make it always a struggle and Greg was pushed to the floor and all this nonsense. He, he gave two different stories of that and I can tell you the second story later on if you like. You've got to flick that safety catch off, mm. pull both barrels. Now, if you shot somebody accidentally, one shot would be enough or you could shoot them in the legs. Fired that gun off, reloaded the gun. Now, with shotgun, as soon as you reload the gun, the safety catch goes on automatically. You've got to flick that safety catch off a second time to shoot a 14 year old boy. Mm. Everything's thought and planned out. There's no accidents about it. It's just, uh, just on that, just on that alone. Unlicensed firearms on a public right away as well, on a public footpath. If anybody else walking down, they could have got killed. Mm. It gets completely thrown out of court. And I was, I was going to say that was essentially the only um, conviction, really, well, which didn't even come to, it was discharged, wasn't it? But that exactly. was the only thing that was kind of proven that they didn't have a license for the shotguns, yeah. uh, which yeah. they should have had. And even that was discharged. Yeah. Sorry, Preston, I'm taking over. I'll let you carry on. <laughs> That's okay. So, yeah, we had a couple of questions from listeners around um, sort of the trial and, and the judges' sort of actions and the police work. So, um, people just in general, even I guess without hearing what you've told us that's new information yeah. to us, people were really yeah. shocked on your behalf anyway. How did that kind of shape your family's lives, that kind of almost the bias that you faced? Oh, it, even now, it's just, there's a, lo- a lot of sympathy locally. There was a lot mm-hmm. of sympathy. Uh, and that, the hardest part was, was of it as well is the way they portrayed my father in court. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. It's like you know, there's all this innocent until proven guilty, but they guilty, but they they absolutely terrified him. Roger knew my dad, and he knew what sort of stature he was. He knows he wasn't six foot three, and they made him out to be six foot three, eighteen stone, ex nightclub bounce used to beat everybody up. Everybody was terrified of him. So they was forced to shoot him, and it was sickening. You know, he was a lovely, lovely family man. He looked after his family. Yes, he did do uh, work on in the nightclubs, which I've done myself. Many people approached me, older guys in the past, and said, yeah, he said, your dad was firm but very, very fair. Mm. And he was, and they, they, they all said to me, there should be more men like your dad. Even some really nefarious characters said that, you know. And um, yeah. over the years, they've all offered to do stuff as well, if I'll be honest. We haven't gone on that route. Um, my uncle said from day one, Let, let's try and get this done the right way. Yeah. And honestly, if it happened now, it would probably be a different kettle of fish, but it hasn't. So we've just got to try and finish as we start as we mean to go on keep on going it's all it's all it's it's on the family part i've got to be honest has done that there's been a lot of problems due to this and and my poor mum you know we we had to live in a house then all of a sudden our dad's been taken away and they they carried on victimizing us the moore family and tires down and they they were all the years what we were there when my dad was alive they let tires down let chickens out and and just play up and do these activities just to wind this up mm-hmm. it, it did intensify shortly after the murder you know um wow. brother pete was terrified one night because we were coming back through the woods 
there's some big logs put in the way, the gate was chained up, stones put in the way. And at uh, the age of 14, 15, I was just, just turned 15 by that time. Um, I had to grow up really, really quick. I had to get out and move this stuff out of the way. And, and yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a tough time, very tough time for all of us. Yeah, and I, I, I remember quoting quite a few things from your uncle, so um, Bob, Robert, and he really yeah. seems to have kind of, that was his, almost like his purpose and his his sort of reason to keep on sort of trying to get justice. Is that something yeah. that he's still really instrumental in at the moment? Yeah, he is. And, I, and I've always said I'll give him his due from doing that from day one because, you know, he was my dad's brother. He's three years older than my dad. I know, and this is for his own admission, he's filled with a lot of guilt because uh, my dad asked him for help and he and he told in my, my uncle's own words that he turned his back on my dad. He thought my dad was being paranoid at the time. My dad reported Terry Moore because my dad was in the wood one night and, and he heard a noise behind him and it was Terry Moore sat on a tree still with a shotgun. And my dad he said to Terry, is that, for, is that for me, Terry? And he just laughed at my dad. My dad reported it to the police. Do it all the right way because he sort of knew what they were like, how they would try, try and coerce everything. Nothing was done about it. Nothing was done about it at all. And then um, the, the, Terry Moore had said when the boundary dispute was going on that um, he believed my dad was taking the fence down. And the police actually said to him, don't take the law into your own hands. He took no notice to the police anyway, took, took no notice of him and did take the law into his own hands. And, and I must add this, we did prove at a later date when I was 17 years old that Terry Moore was a, a thief. Bam didn't belong to him. Never even turned up in court for the, for the trial on the boundary fence anyway. Oh. Going back to my uncle, um, my, my dad's solicitor had asked my uncle, sorry, my dad's solicitor had said to my dad to go up and serve a writ on Terry Moore to ask him to remove the fence. Mm-hmm. He asked my dad to go with him as a witness. And my uncle said to my dad, he said, no, I don't want to go up there. He's likely to poke a gun out through the letterbox. Now, my uncle told me this. And my dad asked his best mate to go up with him, Jamie Rankin. So he went up there and um, they served the writ on Terry Moore. And Jamie says to this day, he said, all Terry Moore was trying to do was trying to get a reaction out of your dad, trying to wind him up. And my uncle said to me, uh, uh, years later, he said, I always remember seeing my dad down the farm and my dad was saying, you know, it's, it's all coming in on me. He said, I could be up on my own. What if he pulls a gun out? You know, I, I'll be unarmed. Terry Moore would say, oh, he was an ex-bouncer, you know, this, that, and the other. He'd come at me and I'd have to shoot him and all this. And actually what my dad had said, what might happen, is what Terry Moore turned around and said in court. Mm. And my uncle said, I always feel guilty that I felt I could turn my back on him. He's trying to, you know, he's, he's trying to pee his own guilt. He's trying to put a, a wrong right, you know? Mm. I think anybody try, would do that if he's in that situation, you know, if you felt felt that way. Yeah. Um. So in the episode, I talked about sort of, and you mentioned earlier, your birds of prey. Do you still yeah. have any of the same hobbies that you had back then? I know obviously you were a teenager at the time, yeah. but is that anything you continued? Uh, yeah. At the moment, because um, I, I haven't flown anything for like five years, I do still like Falcon. I do watch it and stuff, you know. And I, I watch it like, on stuff on YouTube. And I got friends who still still involved with falconry. It's just um, as you get older, work takes over, and I'm pursuing an acting career, and that takes up a lot of time. There's a lot of um, going forward to London. Um, but uh, when I want to get myself more settled again, I probably will get a, another bird of prey again to fly. Um, but it, it was very good for me at that time, though with my birds been able to get out in the countryside and um mm-hmm. obviously i left school early i didn't finish my school and i just didn't feel right at school anymore felt like i grew up overnight i was going to school and i just felt like i was around kids mm-hmm. I was a kid myself but i just had to grow up it's really weird your how your mind and, and copes with stuff uh, so i just felt like i had to get up grow up go to work and i didn't want to be a kid anymore i felt vulnerable that's what thing it was the vulnerability of being a child 
mum and my two younger brothers, so I wanted to grow up as fast as I could. That's really interesting, actually, because we've um, we've sort of touched on that before in in other cases that we featured, and I've never had it explained like that. And that makes total sense that you are vulnerable as a child, so there probably yeah. is that desire to grow up very quickly to protect yourself if something traumatic has happened in childhood. So that's really interesting, Lee. That, that like I say, that's not something I've um, had explained in that way, but that does make sense. Yeah. So uh, you you sort of talked uh, there about the the impact it had on you in the aftermath and the impact it had on your family. What about your physical and mental recovery um, after, after those events? Yeah, it's 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 been it's been a struggle because funny because like I said, cause I wanted to grow up so quick. I really excelled at rugby. I played at the, in the first team for St Peter's in Gloucester, and I went on to play for Old Cryptians as a little club. It's like a feeder club. St. Peter's, and um, they were ringing up every weekend trying to get me back to play rugby, and I just lost interest in it altogether, you know, rugby. Mm. Um, I suppose as I got a bit older, I started again. I got, got very, um, what's the word? Uh, if I was ever going out, as you got older, you start 18 years old, start drinking and stuff, you're with your friends. I've never been a big drinker. Um, I was always looking after the underdog, and I started getting myself into fights, street fights with people, and um as a way of sort of getting rid of that aggression. And I'd never go out and start on anybody, but I was probably getting picked on. It was like a red rag to a ball. If there's any sort of injustice, I had to be amongst, uh, to be amongst it. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was really weird, you know. And um, I didn't have any care about going to prison, getting, you know, didn't bother me. It just didn't bother me at all. Uh, if I thought something was wrong, I thought I'd do something, do something about it if I was there. Mm. I was just watching these sort of people uh, sit back and let it go on. I'm, 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 I'm of that way now. I've got to be honest, it was um, boxing was my saviour. And there's a lot of people, you know, and I will say, I think we're in a very, um, that, what's that word, is the snowflake society these days, you know, and there's people who say, oh, boxing's bad, this, that. Everything, there's a lot of sports that can be bad for you. It's like anything, drinking too much is bad for you. But what I always say with boxing, and for anybody, me personally, Boxing, positives of boxing far outweighed any negatives. Uh, give me a sense of direction, give me discipline, all that aggression. And I, and I, I'm an advocate for youngsters now with knife crime and stuff, getting yourselves in a boxing gym. Mm. You, learn, you, you learn respect because it's not about being bigger and harder. There's guys and they can be half your side, they, 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 they could work you over. Give me that sense of direction. I'll tell you, it's having that sense of focus. So around about 24 years old, I got a real severe depression. Diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder at 18 years old. I thought, what's all, what's all that nonsense? Oh, what, I don't know what that is. I feel all right. I feel um, battled it now. It, it comes back and don't take medication. Mm-hmm. I did when I was 20, um, I think two, two, three weeks. Didn't like doing it. I'm really funny about taking, I don't even take pain unless I really, really have to. I think if you can tap into a part of your mind, your mind's very, very powerful. Um, and again, it's having an having a, a exercise and having something to focus on is really important. So, Focused on boxing because mm-hmm. there was times that I got really got in a really really dark place, really dark place where you felt like just blew, my father could just blow my head off. Being being a witness to this sort of thing, corruption, and um, at a young age being exposed mm-hmm. to that sort of thing, and like I was saying, I remember the detectives along to the next door neighbours. They told me to go along to the house. And I hid by my head, and I could. So they were saying to me one minute, "Oh, they're murderers. They should go to hell," and all that. They're knocking on their door. Oh, hell yeah, how's your dad getting on? How are you doing? And all this, you think two faced swines, you know, where there is okay, you got a strong sense as a youngster of good and evil. 
those two aspects, mm. the two contrasts. And then you realise as you get older, it doesn't seem that way at all. There's a lot of grey there at times, you know. Um, and people are not as what you think they are. Everybody is, but there's a lot of people like say one thing to your face, yeah, and agree with everything to your face, and be completely different to the other person. You know? And with the fox and the hounds, and that's what I found that the police were doing at that time. It was it was a, it was a hard pill to swallow. So when I when I um I haven't mentioned yet when I saw my dad in the mortuary, I'd lost it. As that was that was very tough, very tough. The last words he said to me was, "I'll see you later," and then mm. I remember I put my hand on his forehead stone cold to think it's hard to take in because I, I thought well you can still see him and, and it's really weird because you think oh he's he's he's, he's murdered but i can still see him he's still there it's really it's really really hard to take in so much at a young age such a short space of time having your old world collapse around you and all the people you trust and you're you're taught to respect the youngster then fails the whole system fails you massively these people get praised, murdering a man, shooting a 14-year-old boy. So is that what then prompted you to want to make your film? Is that because you well, wanted to have some way to channel that then? Yes, it is. I've been, I've been talking about this for about 20 years, getting a film done. It's not over yet. You know, we, we talk to people about turning this into a TV series. Oh, wow. Uh, the, 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 the fact was, because all these years, like, like I always say, we've, we've um, had to listen to all their lies. You know? They they come out with this cock and ball story that it was an accident. Now the first thing, if you accidentally shot somebody, you'd be absolutely mortified. You'd try and contact the family, you'd send them a letter of apology. Anything. We had nothing from them whatsoever because it wasn't an accident. It was a cold blooded murder. They never want to talk about it. It'd be interesting to see if they want to do a podcast. Never have. They ne- they don't want to be interviewed, but they shy away from the press. If you've been if you've been pursued for thirty years, being called a murderer. Your family are murderers. You'd want to do something about it. You want to come out and say, "Hang on a minute, no, no, we're not. This was an accident. This is what happened. We didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. It wasn't an accident. It was a cold blooded murder. Simple, simple as that." As far as I'm concerned, and members of my family are concerned, and friends of mine are concerned, police are just as bad because they've helped cover it up. Certain members of the police force, because they know how corrupt it all is, and police officers have told me this off the record. Unfortunately, I won't say anything until they retire. Mm. Uh, because they, even then they can risk their pensions. It's, it's yeah, it's sickening. It's sickening. So, so it's so, sorry, Beth. And so it's sort of you know obviously to to go through what you went through, Lee, is yeah. you know terrible in itself. But then to have that sense of injustice, yeah. it, it's yeah. like a double whammy, isn't it? And I know you've said yeah, that you can't yeah. settle until you get justice for your dad. Yeah, exactly, and this is the thing because people say, "Oh, you've got to get on with your life. You've got to do this." <laughs> I find that sometimes a little bit irritating because I have got on with life. I've done stuff that I probably wouldn't have done. You know, if, um, when I was 15, I was at the Cotswold Falkery Centre. I was doing Falkery displays for people. And I didn't mention that earlier, and that helped me. Dalton, who's still at the Cotswold Falkery Centre, saw me up there as a youngster. And after my dad had been murdered, I'd spent all day there. And he realised I was there all day. And he said, Look, do you want to I told him what happened to my dad. He said, Look, I want to stay here. Stayed in the caravan there. And I ended up doing demonstrations for the public which is really good yeah. quite a shy kid that brought that being in front of those people don't we later on get in the boxing room because mm-hmm. boxing itself would worry me but it's having all those people watching me and like also with the acting and stuff you know it's very funny because you, so it, 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 deep down you're quite shy that gets you out of yourself um, yeah. and it was a good a good way to 
channel things, you know, and and and, and be focused. And certain people say you got to get on with your life. I was um, the top ten as a professional boxer in in the country. Best professional boxer from Australia. Then I went on to win a, a cage fighting TV show, first one they've ever done in this country. I won that. So you know, I've travelled a lot of places, Africa, America, to do with the boxing, the cage fighting stuff. So. Wow. My own business, run my own business now, self-employed. So to say I haven't got on my life is a bit of an understatement, really. Mm. I think sometimes for some people, um, if I would sat outside the subscription stride, subscription rooms in stride drinking meths, maybe they feel a bit better about themselves if I was doing that, you know. Or maybe they feel better about me doing that because I should be doing that instead of um, doing what I'm doing, you know. Do you think like- you have pursued a career in acting as a way of... Um, almost embodying another character, another person means that you get a break from yourself and and the things you've gone through and those memories. Do you think that uh, there is anything okay. in that, Lee? I know some people say that. And I've heard actors sort of say that. No, I don't, because it's acting. Something I've got. It's a funny thing because um, I once said the other day, so I can't believe you got into acting. You're yeah, you're a fighter and all this stuff. <laughs> so I'm not the only person. There's a lot of fighters going into acting. Mm-hmm. So, but. Um, the youngster, I was only about six years old, and I was at um, a place called Gypsy Lane in Leonard Stanley, and um, doing something with my mate. We messing around with bikes or something. I was looking at these calves in this little farm there. I was sort of stroking them, and these couple of old ladies, they said to me, oh, what do you do? When you, you, know, you like animals, do you? And I said, yeah, my dad's a farmer. My dad, dad's Tony Alice, and he's got a small hole. And they said, oh, that's nice and all this. And what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I want to be an actor. And then she said, the one lady, oh, isn't that sweet? She she wants to be an actress. They thought it was a little girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I always remember that. I said to her mum about it the other day. <laughs> so, like, we've, we've, I did a lot of martial arts as a kid, judo and kung fu and stuff, and that's all part of creativity. And it was a lady I did a job for a few years ago, and I suppose she hit the nail on the head because I do landscaping and stuff. And, and when you're creating something, like you're landscaping a bank or you're landscaping a garden, you're doing this... It, about creation, she said, I can see where you like acting. Acting is always been quite a good mimic amongst the family doing stuff. So it's for me, acting is just about it's, it's creating another character, you're creating something. Mm. For me, it's not great from it. I think the easiest part of acting is if you are playing yourself, which some people do, if you play yourself, that's, that's the easy part of acting is mind delivery. Mm. Another character creating something, creating a completely opposite character yourself. Is, is the creative process and that's what i find very challenging and, and enjoy about acting you know it's just doing that in there's something is not you mm. thank you lee did we have any other listener questions bethan yeah so as well as reliving the events through writing and producing the film and talking to the media how does it feel to listen to something specifically about your story i mean obviously i'm kind of thinking of this from the side of our podcast but in general as well how does it feel to hear that feels good when it's when it's when you know the the the, i'll be elated is to hear the true facts and all come out to to have like um imagine we get back into court again then the true facts are put forward because i gotta add this in and and and, because when i listened to the podcast before uh, you put in there what you what you what you researched is that Greg Moore got pushed to the ground by my father and the gun went off accidentally. Mm. So what happened? And this this there was two different stories. That was one story that he got pushed to the ground. I heard Greg Moore's admission in the civil trial in two thousand October two thousand two. He said when my, my barrister cross under cross examination, he said to him, What happened when you came across Tony Alice? 
Greg Moore's exact words were, he said, well, Tony looked at us and Tony turned around and said to us, you're on my landway gun, I'm going to get the police. But straight away, where, where is your threat then? My, my, I think my barrister said, well, where is your threat? Was Tony a threat then? So he, he said, you're not on my landway gun, I'm going to get the police. And my barrister said, well, then what happened? He said, well, Tony walked away from us. So he's already said, you're on my land with guns. I'm going to get the police. He's walked away from them. Yeah. Straight away, where's self-defence? He's, he's gone. He's, he's been passive. He's moved away. He's mm-hmm. gone. Not stupid. He's a strong bloke. But if you've got three, at least three men that were shotguns, which they were at least three that were shotguns, no matter who you are, one person with shotguns bad enough for a game. Mm-hmm. Walked away from them. They said, well, then what did you do? We chased after him. That came out of his own mouth in the civil Christ. trial. They chased after him. Uh, First of all, he said that my dad tried to get the gun off Terry Moore. And he said he was wrestling over a gun. Bear in mind, Terry Moore, Terry Moore was about 19, 20 years older than my father. Said he was suffering from arthritis and everything else. And they would portray my dad as a six foot three, six foot four, 18 stone Hulk. Mm. Would be, there would be no struggle over a gun. He'd just rip the gun straight out of his hand and throw it down the bank with, with him on the end of it. I could have done that anyway at the mm. size he was. So, so Greg Moore trying to make it. They're struggling. Him and my father struggling over his father and my father struggling over this gun. Um, the minute he gets pushed to the ground, and then he says, "Oh no, no! I stood and I fired the gun from my hip." At my dad, Barrister mm-hmm. said, "Why are you frightened of hitting your own father?" Mm-hmm. He looked at the ground and he couldn't really answer that because shotgun spray either hit his own dad. That was another thing. There was no, mm-hmm. there was no evidence. There was no evidence whatsoever of a struggle. There's no fingerprints on the gun. There's no blood, bone, or tissue on Terry Moore. If he was, if there was a struggle, there'd be some evidence of blood on him. There's nothing. Do you know what I mean? So the, a struggle didn't ensue. Didn't ensue at all. There's no struggle whatsoever. They chased after him, then shot him. They got him called and they shot him dead. I think the problem that I found when I was researching is even in the mainstream media where you've got all these. Even within the media retelling, there were two or three different versions of the, the same okay. kind of story. And even then, yeah. it was quite hard for me to kind of work out well, what actually happened. Because even in the press, it was reported this person had a struggle or that person had a struggle. And I remember yeah. we were kind of sort of like, well, what was it then? That seems ridiculous how you yeah. wrestle yeah. with someone who has a shotgun in their arms. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There was honestly, there was no struggle over the, over the gun at all. Mm. But this expert told me that. The civil trial, there was no struggle. Was no- yeah, because that was that was backed up by the ballistics expert, Frank yeah. mm-hmm. Bourne, wasn't it, in the trial? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. And, the, and, the, and the ridiculous thing about it is their, their ballistics expert, Dr. Nicklin, remember when my ballistics expert, or my, uh, it's gone back a while, obviously, when he was under cross-examination, trying to make out it was possible for a human being, now this is an expert of mine, Dr. Nicklin, mm. it's possible for a human being to bend the double-barrel shotgun. This is, like, this is where the corruption starts going in because they, they were trying to tie that in, say that there was a struggle over the gun because my dad managed to bend it in the double barrel shotgun. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then Terry Moore's just as strong toward the other end of it. Then you know what I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. My uncle tried tests. He's put he put a shotgun between two gateposts, tried bending it. He said you can't mm. do it. So you can't do it. It's just not like I said. There's no fingerprints on the gun whatsoever. None of it. It's just it's terrible. Just on that alone, there should be a retrial. Just on that evidence alone, evidence alone. And then we we should just say as well, your uncle Bob, 
Um, he's been backed by the former head of homicide, Dave Johnston, correct, yes, yeah. trustee of National Victims of the National Victims Association. So, you know, he, he people, you know, in positions of responsibility who are experts in these in this field, um, who know about this particular case, are backing you and are backing Bob. So that that does speak volumes, doesn't it? It does. It's a shame they can't do it when they're actually serving serving officers. It's, all, it's always when they're retired. Yeah. And it's because I lose their pensions. What we need to do is get that third person, a red car, Lee Story, investigated in full. You know what I mean? Not just, oh, yeah, that was then and now, or he was drunk and he was... No, you don't take drunken people into a murder scene. It's absolute rubbish, you know. But we need to um, pursue this in a, in a proper and professional way. We need to know the name of the police. He won't be the police now. He's still a witness. I mean, he's still a keen witness, and we need to know who the person was sitting in the car. Then if we get those two names, this one in the car and the person in it, I actually do think the whole case could change. So thank you so much for sort of sharing your story with us and for sharing everything that you have with us and being so open with us as well. is really amazing to kind of hear that, what happened to you in your own words. It's yeah really kind of sobering to hear that and to kind of hear what actually happened from your point of view so I really appreciate that you've done that for us thank you for covering it Beth and I like to stress to people as well you know it's it's really is important to talk about situations because I've always been open and talking in a way that's a bit like counselling so I've never mm-hmm. really seen a counsellor but being open and expressing it and talking about it is really I think with many things and issues people have if you can be open and talk about your problems right, it makes a hell of a difference yeah um so thank you so much guys for joining us for this chat and for letting us record this to share with our listeners um and yeah just a huge heartfelt thank you for getting in touch with us reaching out and and for doing this today and best of luck with your ongoing battle for justice absolutely thank you very much thank you we won't give in good Good. And on that note, we'll we'll end it there. That's great. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Never give in. Never give up. Never, never, never.